right. This is the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and many who were blind, on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the, ones who, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for this yet another holy Sunday that we get to worship you with the gathering of God's people. We pray this morning for our graduates yet again. Pray, Lord, that our students would come to know you, that they would learn to love, to trust you, and that they would boldly proclaim you. We pray also for our student ministry. We thank you for the leadership, Lord. Equip new leaders to come up and help me as I prepare in leadership with them. We pray, Lord, for this summer season. Specifically, Lord, for the church plant in Denver that's being launched out this summer, Skyline Church. We pray for the Kellums as they will, as they will be leaving this church to go into the great unknown, preaching the gospel in the city of Denver. I pray, Lord, that they are a people of faith and of action, that the planning time is over, and now it's time for the doing. Finally, Lord, I just thank you this morning and pray for our PLI graduates. What a testimony that has been to all of us and an encouragement, hopefully, not only to us and our families, but to the church at large. We pray, Lord, for Chad's calf this morning as um, he was injured last night, and we just ask, Lord, for your healing hand. We pray for Shelly, Lord, that she would know that the body of Christ is cheering her on in this difficult season. And finally, we pray for the Gardner family. It's just as grandmother is 
um, seemingly coming to the end of her life and all the logistics of getting family around to say their goodbyes. We just pray, Lord, that you would be providential over that and that you would be generous and kind to the family as they work together. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You guys can be seated. As it was apparent, we are continuing in the Gospel of Luke um, from the reading this morning, but we are also continuing in the question that Aaron posed last week. Namely, that question is, the author is forcing us to ask of ourselves, who is this Jesus? Cole kind of found the crown jewel of that in the text when Jesus very much asked that question in just a few short chapters, who do you say that I am? But this question, this theme, if you will, is kind of a a thread you can find throughout the majority of the Gospel of Luke. That sort of thread inaugurates in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus comes out of the wilderness and He goes into the synagogue and He's kind of inaugurating His ministry. He's going to start by pulling a scroll from Isaiah 61 in a synagogue and He's going to preach. And this is what He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He's anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. To set liberty to those who are oppressed. To declaim that this is the day of the Lord's favor. And later he says, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus comes out of the chute and makes a bold claim. And He spends the rest of the Gospel of Luke backing it up and putting the ball in your court to make a decision about Him. He goes on further in um, Luke chapter 6. When he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you to do? At the end of this sermon, the sermon on the plain in Luke chapter 6, he kind of challenges you one more time. He says, where you invest your faith will either be a foundation of sand and it will crumble, or it will be a rock and it will stand. And if you build on me, the rock, it will stand. And then last week, Back to Aaron's sermon, we see that Jesus is making more specific claims about who He is. Namely, in the healing of the centurion's servant, in um, the beginning part of Luke chapter 7, we see that He is Lord over all nations, Jew and Gentile. And then finally, we see um, the Lord as Lord of death and life when He raises the widow's son back from the dead. And today we're going to answer the same question in a very similar way. Today we will see that Jesus is Lord over you regardless of whether you say so or not. In short, maybe you could say it like this, He is the Lord of our expectations. In other words, our expectations, misunderstandings, or hardened hearts have no right to determine whether or not Jesus is the Lord of anything, namely, of us. Let me give you an illustration to help you. This kind of reminds me as I've been studying through this quite a complicated text if you, if you give it a little digging. This reminds me of my family mealtime with my children. Many of you have met young Stella. She's four years old and she's quite a pistol. And if you've raised young children, the dinner table can be kind of a war zone at times. You know, Stella has a very um, limited set of expectations of what she will and will not eat. And I don't know about you, but in our house, what's for dinner is what's for dinner. 
You know what I mean? Oh, all the parents are saying yes and amen to that. Well, we get to the place now where my young little Stella, she's about this big, puffs up her chest and says, I'm not eating it. I haven't met her expectation of dino nuggets and ice cream every day for the rest of her life. And I love to reply as generously and as kindly as I can, then you're not eating. The expectation of my daughter does not determine what is for dinner. That is an unchanging facet because I am the Lord of my house, if you will. And in the same way, Jesus is Lord over all because of His authority. And in some way, we can get our minds and hearts mixed up to believe that if we set an expectation of God, that He has set out to accomplish it for us. When in fact, it's the other way around. Jesus sets the expectation for all creation. So, I'd like to say it like this. Just like my desire as a parent, the Lord's rule and reign in our life is actually the greatest thing that could ever happen to us. That we would find from this text and from the rest of the Gospel that Jesus is in fact Lord, but He's, the, he's not a Lord of suppression. He's a Lord of salvation. And there's a part of our heart that might think it's a little rude that God has not considered our opinion or our expectations and set out to try to meet them. But in fact, it is far more loving that He would throw your expectations aside and blow your mind with His kindness and loving, caring character. So, we'll start off today by saying, I'd like you to come from a position of assuming that from time to time, you are like little Stella at God's dinner table. Some of you don't want Jesus to be Lord of anything, let alone Lord of you. Some of you have accepted Jesus as Lord, but I wonder if you would recognize Him if He was walking down the street right next to you. We tend to have expectations as the dinner table of the Lord that taint and manipulate and even mutilate what Jesus is like to us to such a degree that when He presents His Word, presents His promises, we don't recognize them when they're right in front of our face. Heaven forbid we would stand in front of the Lord someday and in our hearts say, that's not quite what I expected. Some of you might look at the real, true Jesus and think He's too harsh, He's too judgmental. And He is those things and has the right to be those things. And some of you think, well, He's too loving and too kind of squeamish and soft. And He is those things and it's good news that He is. We want to know the real Jesus. And I submit to you this morning that this passage reveals to us that Jesus is a kind and merciful God. And that what we can expect from Him is good. So we have three points this morning. We've broken the text into three major stanzas here. You can see them up on the screen. The first one is an explanation through a demonstration. The verses are there. The second point is a clarification through a declaration. And then the last one is a reprobation through an illustration. So let's begin right up at the top in verse 18. And we'll read now through verse 23. It says this, And the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling the two disciples to him, sent to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
And when, he, <clears throat> when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now we see John the Baptist come back on the scene rather abruptly in this Gospel. If you haven't been with us, uh, John has actually a pretty pivotal character in the first three chapters of the Gospel of Luke. But he gets arrested and kind of evaporates from the landscape of what the author is writing about. And here he comes bursting back on the scene. You'll remember if you have been with us, of course, that John the Baptist is a prophet who has come to make the way in preparation for the ministry of the Lord. He's the cousin of Jesus. He's kind of a wild guy and he's preaching out in the wilderness to a ragtag group of people who have come out to hear this very unique word being preached. I mean, when you think about preaching, you've got to kind of be soft and helpful and listen to the crowd. That was not John's style. He opened up his first point by saying, you brood of vipers. I don't know if I could pull that off. <laughs> Namely, he comes telling the people that they must repent and be baptized. And many are. In fact, John has the um, pleasure of baptizing Jesus himself. Now John gets himself into a little bit of trouble because he can't stand for anything that is not righteous. And he stands before King Herod, a king over Jerusalem and the nation of Israel at the time, who is a Roman king. And he puts his kind of toes on the line and he calls Herod out for having a, a relationship with Herod's brother's wife and saying that it was good. And John the Baptist says, no it's not, you're in sin. And for that, he was arrested. Now here we are back in chapter 7 and John is arrested and he's hearing about the miracles of Jesus. Namely, the last two that we would mentioned previously. The raising of the widow's son and the healing of the centurion's servant. And this is where we get into mixed up expectations. Imagine if you will, if you are John the Baptist, the one who proclaims that they need to repent and be baptized. And you see the one who is believed to be the Messiah right in front of you. And you say, okay, here we go. The Roman Empire, out you go. All of us who love God, we are going to be promoted. And then what happens? Wah, wah, expectation broken. He ends up in a Roman prison. Let's take it a step further. He's in a horrible prison, but he has an opportunity to get um, visitation. So his disciples come and they report that Jesus just healed a Roman soldier's servant. Imagine how that would make you feel. Here I am in a Roman prison waiting for my escape. And Jesus is not only not you know, freeing me, He's healing another Roman citizen. John the Baptist who said that the winnowing fork is at hand of the Lord and He's getting ready to burn those who are not worthy with a fire that is eternal. He's thinking in this prison, where's the winnowing fork? Where is the judgment of God? He's thinking back 
to Jesus' sermon that He has come to release the captives and He's thinking, hey, I'm a captive. And yet, nothing happens. John had mixed up expectations. He was looking for the right things, but he had them in the wrong order. Jesus will come to judge. Believe me, church, He will come to judge. But that time is not now. And the time when Jesus is walking in the earth during the Gospel of Luke, He's not coming to bring judgment. He's coming to, as His own words proclaim, to preach good news to the poor. So these disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, we got a question. Are you the one who's to come? Or are we supposed to wait for another? Because John's thinking, you may not be the guy. And how does Jesus respond? Not with word, but with action. He doesn't even respond to him. He turns around and he just heals a bunch of people. Notice here in verse 22. He says, and he, or in verse 21, and he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many of those who were blind, he bestowed sight. Wouldn't that be a sight to see? Have you ever had somebody in your life that doesn't use words to answer? They just sort of back their, their, their play up with their actual game? They are not just talking the talk. They are, as it were, walking the walk. Nobody does this better than Jesus. And He turns back to these two disciples and He says, Go tell John, notice this list here, verse 22, all that you've seen and heard, the blind receive their sight. It's a, it's a list of lesser to greater. Notice, the blind have raised their sight. The lame are walking. Lepers are healed. And the deaf hear. And then he says the dead are being raised. That has to be the crown jewel. He's raising people from the dead. I am who I say I am because I can raise people from the dead. But that's not where he stops the list. Notice, look down in your Bibles what follows the dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. The poor is not just talking merely about a financial limitation. In fact, I would submit to you, church, that you and I are all in some way or another poor. When Jesus begins His Sermon on the Mount, He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. His mission was not just to release a physical captivity. He was bringing those out of bondage who were looking at an eternity in hell. We can't get too excited about miracles or signs and wonders in Jesus' day or today because if Jesus healed all those people, the blind, the leprous, and never preached the good news to the poor, they would see themselves right into hell. The greatest thing and the mission of God, the thing that Jesus has come to do is to preach the good news to the poor. And we are Him. We are the poor. Even the centurion who had great financial ability had an issue going on in his life that he was bankrupt in terms of being able to solve. The widow is looking, as Aaron said last week, at a life full of terror and fear. The outlook for her future doesn't look good and she has no ability to fix it. She's poor. And Jesus comes and frees in a way no other man could free. Then he encourages John with this little rebuke. Notice how gentle it is. I love this verse in verse 23. I'd like for us to consider it this morning. And he says, and tell John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
Are you offended by Jesus from time to time? We've all been like John. We have to say so. As he says this, his expectations led to doubt. And that doubt is an offense to a truthful God. And we have to admit that we've been there before, right? Sometimes we are wondering why things are the way they are. Sometimes we have lapses of faith. Sometimes we can't understand what is going on in this world if God is truly sovereign. We too are like John. Maybe this is our application for the day. Does Jesus and His Word set the expectation of your heart? Something to consider. Don't be so quick to say yes. Think about how resolute John the Baptist was. I mean, this guy is the real deal, and he's in prison, and a little bit of um, misunderstanding about the order of events causes him to think, is this really the one? We see this too with the disciples. In just a few short pages over, if you'll turn with me just quickly, I don't know if I have time to do this, but I'm going to. In, in chapter 9, John sets the disciples out and he gives them kind of power and authority to preach the gospel. And he gives them some instruction, namely about rejection. He's like, hey, if you get rejected, don't, don't do anything crazy. Just leave the town. He says something about, you know, shaking the dust off your sandals. We won't go into it now. So he gives them instruction. Like 28 verses later, 50 verses later, notice what happens in verse... Um, in verse 51 through 56 here. Chapter 9, verse 51 through 56. We'll do it in 53. Jesus goes to this town with His disciples and these Samaritans reject Him because He's trying to go to Jesus. Notice the word that it says. And they did not receive Him because His face was not towards Jerusalem. This is the response of the disciples. Those who were so close to Jesus. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do You want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? He just said, just leave them be. But no, we in the same way, we love good judgmental fire. Jesus rebukes them and says, let's move on to another town and we'll try this again. There are sections of conservative evangelicalism of which I am a hand-raising affiliate of who love the idea of fire coming down. I'm so sick of this. I just can't wait for all of these people to be washed away. or I'm, I can't handle these folks anymore. They haven't met God's expectations, so I can't wait for God's wrath to come and for me to have a front row seat. Has the Word of God set the expectation of your heart? Because I believe the Word of God says that we are to love our neighbor. That if those who are in deep mercy and pain, we are to be merciful and in pain with them. That when we have a lesbian who is a neighbor, we're not to try to move away to just get into Weld County because we can't handle this sick and perverse city anymore. No, that we would have the faith to believe that the Word of God works in the darkest areas of the world. We skip over to something like judgment coming down because it's easier. I'm just going to tell you. It's just easier to pray that money would come fall right into our lap through some miraculous sign than it is to trust the Word of God with every day of your financial need. It's easier just to get fed up 
and ask for God to bring justice on those who don't know Him than it is to knock on the door with a casserole in your hand and start a relationship with someone who hates your God. It's just simply easier. But that is not God's expectation. He has set forward to us to preach good news to the poor just as He did. That's enough for now. Let's, let's move on to the second point. A clarification through a declaration. This is verses 24 through 28. So the messengers of John leave and he's dealing with this large crowd of people that have gathered because he's doing these amazing signs and wonders because he's teaching a word that has never been taught before. And so he turns back to the crowds and he says to them in verse 24, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's speaking of John. He asks three questions. He says, did you go out to see a reed waving in the wind? In other words, did you go out to see, when you went to go see John, were you just looking for somebody who's kind of tossed to and fro? Or maybe more literally, did you go out there to just like look at the flowers in the grass? How stupid would that be? Some of these Colorado people, they just want to go like, hey, let's go to eastern Colorado. We'll watch tumbleweeds roll around. I don't have time for that. Why would you do that? Anyway, I digress. He says the answer to that, of course, is no. He said, did you go to see somebody in fancy clothing? John certainly was not in fancy clothing, dressed in camel's hair, and had, you know, grasshopper legs stuck in his teeth. He says, you, don't go there to, you didn't go to see John to see somebody fancy who is entertaining and easy on the eyes. You would go to a king's court for that. You went to the wrong place. Did you go to see a prophet? Yes. And then he makes some claim that's amazing. And more than a prophet, he says. Let me just uh, make sure that I read it to you here. This is in verse uh, 26. A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. How could he say that John the Baptist was more than a prophet? Well, he does this for a few reasons. The first you actually find in the very next verse. In verse 27, why don't you look at it? Jesus says, in reference, he's making a quote of Malachi chapter 3. He says, this is the one whom this is written. So he clears up all the questioning. This is about John. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who you will prepare the way, or sorry, who will prepare your way before you. The first reason John is the greatest of the prophets is that he is the only prophet that was prophesied about. He's the only one that was prophesied about. The second reason is that John is the only prophet to actually see Jesus. Every other prophet had a shadow or a type or a kind of understanding, but they were kind of squinting down the corridor of time to see into the future what this Messiah would be like. John touched him. He is the greatest of these prophets. And finally, he hearkens the end of this old covenant to the person who is going to usher in the new covenant. It's kind of confusing because John is an Old Testament prophet, but we find his work in ministry right in the beginning part of the New Testament. He has a unique job, if you will. He is the bridge from the Old Testament into the ministry of the new covenant, which is the ministry of the Lord. He goes on to just double down. He says, no one born of a woman is greater than John. So think about all the people born of a woman. I'll help you. That's all of them. And at the top of that pile is John. That's an amazing feat. 
I mean, LeBron James is in that pile. Elton John is in that pile. These amazing type of people are in that Nope. John is the greatest of them all. But then he goes on to say something else. Notice this. I tell you, among those born of women, verse 28, no one is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So we have the top of the pile, but he's actually the bottom of the pile for everyone who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Why is that true? This is helpful for us, church. I hope this is really good. We're going to get to an application here. He clears up who John is for these people but He also clears up who we are in light of the cross. In the same way that John had more evidence to the Messiah by being able to see Him, we have more evidence of the Messiah by knowing what He has done. We are greater than any prophet of the Old Testament, greater than Moses or Abraham or even David, characters that we admire, because we know how the story of redemption plays out. Never did one of these men sing a song about the victory of the cross. Isaiah, in all of his understanding about who God was, never got to attend an Easter Sunday service with a beloved who all call their King Jesus. How blessed are we? How much greater do we have it than any of them? Finally, none of these men had the full gift of the Holy Spirit that is working in us, bestowed to us, to minister to us, to correct us, and to lead us. Maybe you could say it like this in summary. The prophet John had a greater understanding than all of the previous prophets because he got to see who the Messiah was. Likewise, we on this side of the cross are greater than the greatest prophet because we got to see how the Messiah would save. We don't have to guess. We don't have to twiddle our thumbs or lay awake at night and thinking, how is this possible? The mechanics of salvation have been laid out for us and they are called the Gospel. We should be so encouraged that we live in a time when we have a Bible that can sit in our lap. A quick illustration about this is again with Stella. Stella was getting on the first airplane that she kind of understood what was going on and she was terrified. Rightfully so. She's a little girl way up in the sky. She's thinking this is going to go down. She's looking out the window and she's crying because she doesn't know what the flight is going to be like. She can't see the future. I have an opportunity to minister to my daughter, not because I've been on this flight, but I've been on the other side of my first flight. I can explain to her about how the seatbelt will work and the stewardess and the good little peanuts that we get and what a window seat is and what an aisle seat is, I can provide a comfort and a clarity because I have an experience. And so can we. We can provide greater comfort than those we admire in Isaiah and Jonah and Ezekiel and all of the rest because we have a tool and a spirit and a church that has given us more experience than any point period in history period ever period. How lucky are we? Here's the application. You can be confident in your biblical expectations. The first point was you, can, you let God determine your expectations. Let Him and His Word determine it. And the second point is, you can be confident in those expectations. Maybe you're at a point in your life right now where you're just struggling to hang on. The whole thing is held by a thread. Your life is upside down and twisted every which way. 
Maybe you thought to yourself, if I could just see some of the signs and the miracles of Moses, I would, or if I could see the power that Elijah had, I would know for sure that God is there. Brother, sister, be encouraged that the very ceiling of what the prophets of old could believe is the very floor of your understanding. First Peter talks a lot about this. I don't want to read it. He goes on in verse uh, chapter 1 about verse 10. And he says, Concerning salvation, the prophets went about looking for grace that would eventually be yours. And they spent their lives inquiring carefully. He goes on later to say, And that inquiry is laid in your lap, not only in truth, but in understanding. We can understand it. You think the Bible's hard to read. The Bible is hard to read. But it's not complicated. It's not more complicated than not knowing how this whole thing is going to play out. Could you imagine how much faith you'd have if you didn't know Jesus at all? If there was no reference to the cross? I carry on. Our circumstances should not get a vote in determining how confident we are in our biblical expectations of God. To the struggling brother or sister, I would say to throw yourself on the promises of God that you would see and gain in faith when you realize how hard and solid and firm they are. And the last point here. Number three, a reprobation of a generation through an illustration. Jesus is turning to these people and He's telling them, I'm going to clarify some stuff about John and in doing so, I'm going to clarify some stuff about you. And you see here in this very distinct verse, would you read 29? This is a very complicated verse here, and I want you just to see. We've got to handle verse 29 and 30. He finishes his statement about us being the greatest because of the kingdom of God. And then he looks out at the people, and we see this in parentheses in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. In the first chapter, or the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we see that some of the audience who is listening to John the Baptist preach are these tax collectors, these kind of hated people. And there they are again showing up when Jesus is giving this declaration about who John is. And it's helpful. You have to think. Put yourself again in their shoes. They go, they listen to this crazy guy, and they get baptized with repentance. And then somebody else comes, and he starts doing these crazy miracles and preaching in a way they never heard of. And they're thinking to themselves, I don't know what I was thinking about getting baptized by John. This is the way... I should go. I'm not really so sure about that guy. Did you hear that that guy's in prison? Don't tell people I was baptized by him. Just keep that on the low, as the kids would say. John clarifies that John the Baptist is a great prophet and has done exactly what God intended them to do. And in their hearts, some of them received this baptism as their declaration of repentance. But he's looking out on the crowd and others are scoffing. John gives this word, or Jesus gives this word, and some are thinking, oh yeah, that's really helpful. And some, oh. They've rejected the teaching of John because it doesn't match up with their teachings. The Pharisees think, no, salvation comes by merit. By righteousness bestowed in our works. 
John comes saying, you need to repent because you're all sinners. They scoff at that and they get rid of John. Then Jesus comes and they scoff at Him too because they are rejecting the very foundational element of Jesus' Word. The tax collectors declared and the lawyers rejected. Do we understand that? But what have they, how did they declare and reject? What specifically? Notice in your text. Baptism. This is just a small side point here. I don't have too much time. I fear that there may be some of you who've witnessed and seen all the baptisms at this church and in your heart you're saying, I'm not doing that. I'm noticing, especially with our young people, a kind of bubbling up of a false doctrine that I want to address this morning and I think it hits a beachhead with baptism. That we have liberty and freedom in Christ. And that is true. All things are lawful. But the second half of that verse says, not all things though are profitable. Because you have a liberty does not require that you express that liberty in every single form. I don't have to get baptized, so I'm not gonna. And you might say to me, well, the thief on the cross, he wasn't baptized. Listen, church, if you're pinned up to a cross, I'll give you a pass. But if you've sat in this church or in any other church day after day and you've witnessed those who are making a public declaration in obedience to what God has asked us to do with our life and you stiff arm that, I would say that you look far more like the rejecting lawyer than the declaring tax collector. Whether it's I don't want to get wet or I'm afraid of water or I don't want to bring it up or I'm free to not do it. I would just say to you, would you consider talking to a pastor? Searching your Scripture? And trusting God with your obedience to Him? That was just a side point. Okay. Verse 30. We close this out. The Pharisees and the Droyers rejected the purposes of God. And so he turns and he sees these people and he says almost to himself, what is this generation to be like? Jesus asks a question as he's observing this. And he tells them, he says in verse 31, or verse 32, you are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. In short, he's saying, you guys are like little kids who go to the field and some of you say, I want to play weddings. And you say, no, I don't want to play weddings. I want to play funerals. A dirge. I don't know what kid wants to play funerals. And so we point at each other and we argue and this person's wrong and that person's wrong. Jesus says, you are a generation of people that is so childish. Some of you hate John, he says, because he's an ascetic Jew. He didn't come eating and drinking. Drinking. And so you said that he was demon-possessed, and you, didn't reject, you rejected his message. And then I come eating and drinking freely, Jesus says, and you reject me. You cannot have it both ways. They don't understand that Jesus and John, listen to this, behaved in such different ways as a means of grace for the very people that were rejecting him. Jesus comes to save the world and He uses John to do it and they reject Him. And He says, it's okay. I'm going to come in a different way. You'll accept this message. And they reject Him both. Like little kids at the table saying, I won't eat it. 
Notice back in verse 30. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. This generation of religious leaders desired a Messiah. They wanted one. And then He came. And Jesus says, I'm the Savior. Here I am. And they said, you don't meet my expectations. I want a different Messiah. And Jesus replies, you can't have a different Messiah. I'm the only one. And they respond in kind, then I don't want one at all. You child. I would say we have some of that going on in here, don't we? You'd be surprised. I wish I could videotape what happens to a pastor after a service concludes. I was reading Alistair Begg brought this point. I was like, that is so true. There'll be some visitors that come and they'll say, that was a wonderful service. But, you know, it was a little too long. I was looking for something a little quicker. Or, I love this church, but the worship, it's just, oh. And on the same day, the next person will come up and they'll say, I love this church. The worship is the best I've ever heard. This is a true story. This is a different church. I finished preaching one time and I was back in my office and the offering team was bringing a, the offering back to count it and they were using my office to do so. And they turned to me and they said, hey, Beck, this is for you, which is very unusual. You know, we don't really mess with any of the money. And, and it wasn't a check. It was actually a piece of paper. The woman who had filled it out thought that the offering box was a comment box. And she said, I really enjoyed this service, but I'm looking for something that is done by 11 a.m. I'm looking for a place that wants to find out everything they can about who Jesus is. I'm looking for a place that says, I don't care if, the, if it's a dirgy song or a happy song, we're coming together on this Sunday, and whatever the tone of the text is, that's going to be the tone of my heart, because I want Jesus. I want my expectation to be set by the Word of God. I want to be confident in who He is and what He said that He did. And I need an encouragement of the Word to do so. I don't know if I like the worship. To be honest with you, I don't know if I have the authority to say this. I don't really care what you think. Honestly. But I do care that you would see in verse 35 the answer. That the wisdom... Is pro- or the wisdom of God is proven by her children. In other words, that you would say that truth is revealed in time. If you don't like something about this church or your Christian faith or what's going on here, just stick around. Don't let one service or two services determine whether this is a good place or a bad place or whether you agree or not, you children. Let time prove it. Are you sitting in Sunday and deciding whether this is tickling your ears or are you just falling asleep? If you give yourself five years of devoted service to a life group and a journey group, wouldn't the measure of time prove that you are either growing or not? That this place is worthwhile or not? Would you let wisdom be proven in time? Was John legitimate? Is Jesus who He said He is? What about those people that were baptized by John? What do we do with those people? That's all a farce. Well, I'll tell you that history's looked quite favorably on Jesus and John and His disciples. And the Pharisees? Well, not so much. The wisdom of time is proven by her children. The applications quickly. Don't make evaluations until you have an ample amount of evidence.
And the second one, and the most important of all, is I close. If you're in this room and you are coming on this Sunday as a visitor and you're really looking for Jesus, I would love to introduce Him to you. It would be my greatest joy to have a group of people who are saying, I'm just looking for Jesus. Some of it will be good, some of it will be bad, whatever, but I'm going to have my heart shaped by Him instead of the other way around. Maybe you could summarize it like this. Whatever Jesus is serving, I want to eat it. So, who is Jesus to you? And what is this room, this generation, to be like? Is it a group of people who want to see the Word as accurate and true? Who trust God and believe in what He says about His Son and Himself? Is this a generation of people who boldly declare our faith in the waters of baptism? Is this a generation that say we are a people who look forward to the future because we know the wisdom of their faith will only be proven more and more true in time? I would say as a church, as an encouragement to you, yes. This is a place that does that. And I'm so proud to be named among you. But as an individual, I can only hope so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We give You thanks and praise this morning for this great Word. You are the expectation setter. You determine what is for dinner. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a group of people who just say, whatever You're serving, we want to eat. And not be judgmental or censorious about it. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that declare boldly and truly that You are the risen Messiah and the One worth following. And I pray finally, Lord, that Your message given so clearly in Scripture is one that we are willing to give out freely to any who would hear. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.